The Entrepreneur Adventure, giving entrepreneurs the tools to climb higher and faster than ever before. So lots of entrepreneurs have never really thought about this, but here's the deal. Your entrepreneur adventure at some point is going to end. You're going to stop being in your business. You're either going to go out of business, you're going to leave your business to somebody, or you're going to sell your business. So you might as well begin with the end in mind and build it to sell. This episode of the Entrepreneur Adventure Podcast features Mr. Brad Tucker. Look Ahead Business Consulting, Brad is a very successful entrepreneur who has successfully sold multiple businesses. So I'm your host, Josh Melton, the Sidekick Prophet, joined by my co-host, the Serial CFO, Mr. Chad Brown. We're in a conversation today with Brad that I'm telling you, it just gets richer in content as it goes. Every entrepreneur needs to hear this stuff. It is legit. It is awesome. So tune in, my friends, and let's get to the conversation with Brad Tucker. Get us started. How did you become an entrepreneur to start with? Did you just know all your life, like, man, I'm going to own my own business, or did it sneak up on you somehow? Uh, Not too long ago, my college roommate, uh, with whom I'm still good friends, told me over a beer, he said, you were the only person I know at 18 years old, you knew exactly what it is you wanted to do, and you're doing it. And I'd never really thought about that, but I guess it's true. Uh, sometime during my time in college, I realized that I wanted to own my own business. I always loved being in sales, and I wanted to be in a sales environment. And I've been a car nut since I was four years old, so I wanted it to be something involved with automobiles. So I kind of thought about that for a while and decided I wanted to go into the retail automobile business. And so that's what I did. I used a a course at um, my senior year at Carolina. That's North Carolina. It's only Carolina (laughs) in the state of South Carolina. In the other 49 states, Carolina means North Carolina. Uh, So anyway, so my senior year there, I had a class in in training in, in business school, and we had to go interview local companies. And I talked my group, my working group, into interviewing two local car dealerships that had good training programs because those are the two places I wanted to go to work. And I went ahead and used the interviews for the class to get interviews for the job. Whoa. So, <laughs> so you, you, you knew at that age, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to own my own business. Did you come from an entrepreneur upbringing? Uh, did your parents own their own business? Uh, or was that something you just had to drive in you at, at that time to go do something on your own and pave your own way? Uh, my father was a Fortune 500 executive. Oh, wow. And so he spent his entire life in corporate America and sure. was very successful, vastly more than I'll ever be, and taught me a ton of things. But among other things, he taught me that I didn't want to be in corporate America. Not that he didn't want to be in corporate America, but the politics and and some of the other things that go on in those big companies was just really unappealing to me. And I started working when I was 12, throwing newspapers. And, and I always liked that small business space and the interpersonal relationship that I had with my customers. And, and uh, you know, so those things were, were always very appealing to me. Sure, that's great. All right, so you convinced uh, your group to pursue the car dealership training route, and what happened from there? So again, you know, blind luck is is a great business strategy sometimes. And I got interviews with both of these places, and this was in Durham, North Carolina, and 
I, I said to myself, you know, I'll go to work with whoever hires me first. And so uh, I got hired uh, first by a, a dealership that uh, sold a variety of cars, some really neat Highline stuff, and then some things that, that normal folks drive, most of us. And uh, ironically, again, they were just the first people that called, right? So the man that owned that dealership is my best friend outside besides my wife. And he's the one who brought me to Athens and was my business partner here for 11 years. So, and, and he hired me in 1983. And so, you know, that blind luck decision wound up leading to a career long and lifelong relationship. The guy that didn't hire me got hauled out of the dealership in handcuffs um, at the other dealership. So, you know, again, <laughs> blind luck. If, if the other guys had called first, my career would look a lot different than it does. And then it did. So. So, so you started, I'm guessing, at that time as an employee or, or as some sort of a training program, and you I, leveraged that into I a partnership. Started, I, I sold cars. Okay. All right. How, yep. did, how did you go from selling cars like hundreds of thousands of other people to leveraging a, a partnership and uh, moving and, and everything in between? I began with the end in mind, right? I wanted to own a car dealership. So I said, okay, if that's the end... How do I get there? And and it didn't take me very long. I started out selling cars, right? So so within the first six months to a year, I had understood enough about the business to know what the path looked like. And so then, so did I know that path the day I went to work selling cars? No, I knew what the end looked like, and then I found out how to get there, and and I made it a priority to understand how to get there. And and then I could start walking down that path. So, so that was pretty well mapped out. That's really cool. Then yeah. the whole thing went off the rails when I got to 40, but that's a, that's, <laughs> that's a different thing. So, you, But you had this 20-year plan. I did. You knew, all right, I'm going to get into the car business. Like you said before, too, that you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur on your own business. You knew you wanted to be in the car business, and you knew you wanted to sell. So, so how did it go for you? Yeah, then it's starting out. Because, again, you know, you have this 20-year plan, which is super uncommon for someone in their early 20s to have it lined up. Like, I don't know exactly what I want to look like, my life to look like when I'm 40. You admit or acknowledge that like, I wasn't mature enough where I needed to be to get that journey started the way I needed to. But what shifted for you? Like, if you could go back and talk to your 20-year-old 20 year, 20 year self, you know, what would you be saying? Like, hey, kid, this is what you need to be doing. And then how did you learn the lessons that you needed to learn to get on that journey and scale up? Smarter people than I have talked about the most important decisions you make in your life. And I, I should preface this by saying, when I was in high school, I was a miniature adult. You know, I was very mature. I did mature things. I worked. I, I, I did, you know, I dressed a certain way. I was very mature. Then I went to college and I became a small child. <laughs> and, and so for four years, I, I did things that if everybody had phones back then, I probably wouldn't be allowed out on the street. But... Fortunately, God protects fools, which is why I'm still here. Uh, so, so we got through that. And, and I won't say that I was markedly better at the beginning of my career. But the best decision that I have ever made in my life was that I was fortunate enough to get married to my wife. It's still the most important relationship I've ever had, the most important person in my life, and, and has been more influential than anybody else. I can relate there. I, 
I, I grew up a lot once I met my wife. <laughs> Things changed on the personal and business level. So, yeah, same, similar experiences. Uh, college, uh, a very, uh, a lot of fun and a great time, but uh, not necessarily the professional uh, behavior that that you want to represent going into the business world or the car world. Uh, timeline for you, you get hired by the dealership to being a partner or having some ownership uh, in a dealership. What was that timeline? What did that look like? Well, on on my 40th birthday, I was a I was buying stock in the company to, 20 to years. be a partner. So it it took the length of time that I had said it was going to take. You know, nothing's linear. It, it, we like it to look linear and maybe over a long period of time, you know, if you stretch that timeline out long enough, it smooths the bumps and looks pretty linear, but in the moment, it's it's anything but. And I will say Again, not a linear path for me. After about 13 or 14 years in the business, uh, my first employer, who again was my business partner here in Athens, uh, he retired for the first time. And so I had to go find something else to do. And at that time we were living in Richmond, Virginia, and I was running a dealership up there. And I came back down to North Carolina, and which is where my wife's from and where I was raised, and worked for two or three different companies over the next five or six years. And I got tired of that. I, we didn't want to move all the time. We didn't want to bounce the kids through schools all the time. So I decided to go into business for myself and open an independent car lot back mm -hmm. in my wife's hometown. And I'd been in the car business for 13 or 14 years at that point, And I had a fair bit of experience and I'd run several people's dealerships profitably. And so I thought I knew something. And I made every mistake <laughs> a first-time entrepreneur can make. I was undercapitalized. I went into the market without a real understanding of who my competitors were. I went into the market without a real understanding of the reputation of my industry in that market. I, you know, basically, I just walked in full, full, full of ego and attitude and really short on the right answers. And, and fortunately, we were able to muddle through that, and I had that business for about four and a half years, and then I sold it to come down here and take over a dealership here in Athens. At that time in your life, was the sale already in your mind for that uh, independent car dealership uh, you had at the time? Did, did you start that with the intention to sell, or was that just nope. organically happened? I started it with the intention of not moving every two years and getting my wife back to her hometown, which was something that she had valued and expressed a desire for. And, uh, and, and that was it. And it's funny, if you asked me what I could tell myself 20 years later, I would tell myself today, go back to 1995 when Michael Gerber released The E-Myth Revisited and read that book, <laughs> you know, and, and it's still just as relevant today as it was Absolutely. in 1995. Yeah. And, and I did all the wrong things, right? You know, why did I go into the used car business the first time? I had an entrepreneurial seizure, just like Gerber describes in the yeah. book. I got tired of the way I was being treated in a situation. I said, I can do this for myself, you know, and then I became a technician. And I worked myself like a dog, went four years without a vacation. Just, I mean, just grinding. So question for you there. 
Was that the education that four years of grinding you needed for the next steps in your dealership life? Or when you look back on that, you're like, man, I should have, even looking back, I should have handled those four years way different. You know, I'd, I'd like it for all those young entrepreneurs out there. I, I would like it to be six months. <laughs> but I think we can all agree that we learn a lot more from our challenges and our struggles than we do from our wins and certainly from the easy wins. Mm-hmm. The first time I was self-employed, the great lesson I learned, I learned two great lessons. Number one, um, learn how to say no and make it stick. When you're spending somebody else's money, you can be worn down. When you're spending your own, you learn how to say no and make it stick. I I think that was a huge thing. Um, I think the other thing I learned is that there is an absolute limit to the amount of income that one person working on their own can generate. And and I learned that, that no business that I really wanted to own over a period of time that would help me achieve my goals could be a one-person show just because it, it's it's not capable of generating the kind of revenue that I was looking for. Which means you got to learn how to lead and manage people. Yes. That's the path of success. Absolutely. The, the size you want. What did you learn in that first sale that helped you in the sales that would follow? Probably nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking for a get-out-of-jail-free card, I'm assuming, on that yeah, first Probably sale, right? nothing. I, you know, that was... I, the opportunity presented itself to come down here, mm-hmm. and it was, it was too good an opportunity to pass up. And I didn't have a lot of, of money tied up in that business other than inventory. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we, had a, we had an exit strategy for the inventory. But I was renting the land... You know, I, this was a fancy place. I had a 12 by 54 foot single wide trailer and I had one of those $695 carports that is out front. exactly what I think about yep. when I think of North Carolina used car dealership. <laughs> like, I see it right now. <laughs> yes, sir. I, you know, you could say the same thing about Athens, Georgia used car dealership <laughs> too. Um, so, hey man, watch out how you're talking about Brad Tucker Enterprises there, buddy. <laughs> oh, that's okay. By the way, it's called Value Motors. Hey, um, I, I, I lived in one of those for about 10 years, so I yeah, won't you there. Good, <laughs> now, I, 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 you know, it's funny. I, you mentioned the name, and it, it leads me to a thing. And this is the greatest lesson I learned from that business. And I don't know that I realized it at the time, but it is absolutely fundamental to everything I've done since. My, my former business partner, who's a gentleman named Jim Reynolds, lives here in town with his wife of, of 50 plus years, another good role model. Um, he says that in every town, there are business people that have a street named after them. And the name of the street is One Way. They only know one way how to do this, and they're going to run it that way until the day they go broke, regardless. None of the businesses that I have ever owned a piece of or all of, have ever looked the same at the time we exit than they did at entry. I've stumbled on lots of great stuff. I am, a, <laughs> I am a, an Olympic stumbler. Uh, but, and the, the moment that I'll always take away with me from, that, from my used car lot was I had a customer taking delivery of a Land Rover Discovery, the $25,000 truck at that time. And he said to me, if you told me that I would ever buy a $25,000 vehicle from a guy 
on a gravel lot by the side of the road, I'd have said you were out of your mind. <laughs> he said, but three of my friends told me if you buy a used car in Winston-Salem, you go buy it from that guy on that gravel lot. And, and so, again, the business evolved so much in four years that the only thing that looked the same was the sign. So fast forward, you're in Athens, Georgia now. You have realized your 20-year dream of being a part of a, of a dealership. What does that look like now? Are, are, you, are you thinking at this point with the end in mind? Are you thinking, I've heard you say before, what does this look like when I turn the key and walk out the door? Are you, <laughs> are you having those uh, thoughts at, at this point, or where are you at from a mindset standpoint? So probably the best professional thing that ever happened to me was coming to Athens, Georgia. Probably the worst thing that happened to me professionally was how I handled that 10-year period between 40 and 50. Okay. And, and this is where I, this is, these are the lessons that taught me begin with the end in mind and, and always have a plan, have, a, have, have a, a goal. Don't ever stop, even when you've gotten where you want to go. So at 40 years old, I was blessed in that professionally I had achieved my goal. I was a managing partner in an automobile dealership. I had a buy-sell with the majority partner to, to purchase the rest at the time of his passing, which we hoped was sometime down the road and still hasn't happened. So I'd still be working. <laughs> um, that's the first time I've really thought about that. That's scary. That's a moment right here on the um, podcast. <laughs> so so I, I was there, right? I'd gotten it. I, I woke up at 40, and my life looked exactly the way I had envisioned it at 20, you which is a pretty great thing. You reached the top of the entrepreneur mountain. Yeah. You're, you're, you're... And so, so now I was just going to do the job and wait for this generational transition. Terrible mistake because I got stale. You know, I ran the business. I worked hard. I, I worked hard to, to have the business and its employees be successful. I worked hard for our customers to value the relationship and, and be treated well. And, and all the things that are important to me as a philosophy of interacting with employees and customers. But I stopped growing. I was there. Why, why grow, right? I'm there. Making sure. good money. I'm an owner. I have, I have the life I wanted. All those things. And I got stale. And when the recession hit, which of course was brutal for everybody, and it was certainly brutal for the automobile industry, that it lost 40% of its sales in one year. Uh, and we weathered that storm, but it was really hard. And, and finding any joy and, and passion for the field I'd been in for so many years was really hard to come by. And, and it wasn't anybody's fault really other than mine because I had stopped growing and learning and, and pushing myself. And I look back on that and, and frankly, I probably owe Jim a, a huge apology for that. If I had continued to really push, you know, who knows what the business would have looked like. Because so, you'd, you'd reached the ideal though, right? Like, so what you're saying is that you had when you started out your 20-year plan mm -hmm. and you hit it. I did. And now you're like, dude, go, I mean, I wanted to run the marathon. I ran the marathon. And then, like you said, you got stale because the next marathon wasn't planned. I, yeah, I just, you I made no plans summit. past 40. And, and so, it, so we, we wound up selling the dealership in 2011. 
And so I, at that point, I'm 50 years old. And I, my partner had enough confidence in me to, to let me lead the sale process, which was a phenomenal learning experience, uh, which has certainly served me well since, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Uh, but at 50, I had to figure out what am I going to do because I didn't have enough money to retire, and I was too young to retire. And that forced me to go back to the drawing board and start thinking about what does the future look like, what are my goals, where do I want to wind up, and then build how do I get there. So in the dealership, this is recession. Uh, lots of things are going on in the world. Uh, as you said, the, the dealership industry was hit extremely hard. This is not something where you spent two years building this business to sell, I assume, that you facilitated a sale, but it wasn't a necessarily long-term plan process. No, it, it was always, my personal goal was was to go to the house from that dealership. I sure. Mean, to, to, uh -huh. to ultimately own the dealership. And then at some point, yes, maybe at some point, 30 years down the road, sell it. But, but yeah, I, there was never an intent for me. I came down to Athens, Georgia to buy a dealership, not to sell one. Confidence level at this point. Were you, I'm an entrepreneur, I can go be successful at anything. Were you questioned going back into business? Where, where were you at from a confidence level and a mindset? I've never thought of it in terms of confidence. Mm -hmm. And I don't think of entrepreneurship in terms of risk. Okay. I like that. And, and people have said, you know, that's really risky going into business for yourself. I've never thought of it as being risky. I've, I've, and it's not, it's not a question of, of extreme confidence in my abilities. It's a question of you look at the model, you look at what it's capable of doing, you look at your market, and you say, can this business properly run, generate the kind of return that I need it to, to return? So you have confidence in your due diligence. Yes. You do enough research to know going in, it's hard for you to lose. It, if, if the model is sound and, and I'm willing to be flexible, and again, I, I think that's a key thing that, that maybe has, been, has helped me be more successful, is that I'm not married to my concept. I, it, does not, it does not matter. The result matters. The process, as long as, and, and this has crystallized for me in the last 10 years, if I, as the, as the CEO, am worried about the process, I think I'm worried about the wrong things. I think that my operations people need to be worried about the process. I'm married to outcomes, not processes. So what I've learned to do, and, and boy, it took me forever to learn how to properly delegate and let go of things. But here's the goal. Here are the key performance indicators. This is what we need to achieve. Here is the company's philosophy. This is non-negotiable. How we treat customers, how we treat employees, how we face the community. Um, Simon Sinek's why. Non-negotiable. So as long as you get us to these results and maintain the integrity of our key philosophy, how you do it, I'll, t I'll talk with you about it, I'll give you feedback, I'll support you, but you handle it. And because of that, I'm willing to let 
the company grow and evolve and, and do what it needs to do. My ego's not involved. As we relate this, uh, some key things I'm picking up here for our audience. Begin with the end in mind. Absolutely. Do your due diligence on a tremendous level where you have confidence in that market and that due diligence on the front end, but you better be very flexible all the way through from a process standpoint or from an adaptation standpoint. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I could, extremely valuable. You know, I, I think we can learn something from everybody with whom we come in contact. Sometimes we learn how to do things. Sometimes we learn how not to do things. We had a consultant at one point in the dealership and, and his phrase was, don't get mad at your money. And, and that's not intuitive. It doesn't make obvious sense. But what he meant by that is don't let emotion drive financial decisions mm -hmm. about your business. And, and so I think what a lot of times people do is they get emotional about a concept or a notion and, and, it, and they, they follow it because they love it. This is, they're, they're married to this thing. It's, it's, and it keeps them from making some of the sound decisions that they should make. You know, we all know that the two reasons, the two primary reasons that businesses fail is, is number one, there's no demand for your product. You, you completely overestimated whether people wanted whatever it was that you were selling. And number two is lack of capital. And a lot of that is emotional, right? We picked a product, we probably picked it emotionally, or we got emotionally attached to it and weren't willing to change it or evolve it or scrap it and replace it. Because we would view that as a personal repudiation or a personal failure. And that's, that's I, I don't think that's the, the best way to look at it. I think we need to be a lot more pragmatic and look at the result. A successful business with happy customers and, and happy, engaged employees who take pride in what they do and, and go home happy to their families, that's the goal. The, the product or service you sell to get there, I don't think is nearly as important. That's really insightful. And I think one of the benefits for Chad and my partnership in business is that I will get emotional. All the stuff we're talking about with the emotional piece, like I do, I get excited about ideas, but my emotion has a financial governor in that, I'm not all in the, in the details of where we're at financially. And me and, Tra and me and Chad have a trusting partnership. So I was like, hey, man, here's where I'm, here's what I'm thinking. And it all filters through him. So we almost have like a safety valve on making like what a lot of entrepreneurs would do. They would just get emotional. And again, they would get mad at their money or get, or get happy with their money, whatever it may be, and make some decision without sound financial doctrine, so to speak, you know, that could, that could govern their decision-making. Because again, we, we all know that if we really want to do something. We're always great salespeople selling ourselves. We can mm -hmm. sell ourselves on any type of stupid idea and move on. And we see so many businesses that crash and burn. Absolutely. As a result, of, especially you, you see, like you, you watch them go down. <laughs> like you see them go down before we do with what you do professionally. But now I, I, I do want to say about that, that it, it, I, it sounds like as, as I sit here and, and think about this it sounds like you know brad's this logical guy man i'm as emotional as the next person i can get <laughs> pumped up and excited about something so fast i mean i can go from zero to full hot in terms of enthusiasm for something in the blink of an eye but i don't act on it immediately mm -hmm. you know i again yeah. everybody i mean if we're not excited about something we might not should be doing it but 
take that deep breath. I'm a huge believer in the 24-hour rule. Yes. Give everything 24 hours to percolate before you respond. Because your first response is going to be gut level. It's going to be more emotional than it should be. And, and a day later, you've had time to let that emotional wave kind of wash over you and, and think about it a little bit. And I think invariably when I've done that, I've done a better job responding. Brad, I'm going to start calling you the reverend because as you're talking, Chad's over here having a religious experience. <laughs> He's like closer to God when you're talking right now. He's, I, he said an amen. We bleeped it out of the podcast, but I swear he said amen. Or so maybe speaking to my soul over here. <laughs> He's but, feeling the conviction. Because this, I am, I'm a numbers guy, obviously. And I live on the conservative side of the spectrum financially. But I get emotional and excited as well. So that 24-hour rule has saved me so much money. For all of my business ventures, all of my partnerships, everything I'm involved in, if it's an item over $500, I put a 24-hour rule on it. Uh, in the business world, can't write a check, can't spend, can't agree to a contract. Anything over $500, 24-hour rule. And 80% of the time, after 24 hours passes, we won't follow that expense or we won't make that decision. And that has saved me so much money. So that 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 advice there speaks to me and something I have firsthand experience is so valuable. It, and, and again, I, I live on the more conservative side of the emotional number spectrum. So any business owner out there, uh, especially if you're in business for yourself, put some barriers and put some boundaries around uh, that 24-hour rule and a, and a dollar figure to control it there. And, and I think it would it's hugely valuable in, in no matter what you do. See, my Absolutely. use of the 24-hour rule is so different than yours. Because for me, it's all right, 24 hours before I can act on this decision. But 24 hours later, I've already forgotten about it. I'm on to something else. You're on else. something else. Butterfly <laughs> brain. I'm on another idea. We've totally passed. Well, you can call one. yourself butterfly brain. Gino Wickman calls you a visionary. There we go. A lot of truth truth there. Yeah, Gino Wickman's better at wording these. I like Gino. So I heard this word defined. It's a word we all know, but I never heard it defined this way. But just the 24-hour rule in practice, the word consider actually means with wisdom. So it's applying wisdom. Oh, that's good. To the you know, because again, emotionally we like, oh, this is a great idea. And so wisdom would say, all right, well, let's let's think about this great idea. The two of you play off each other in 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 the ways that you have you have somebody who is again to use Gino Wickman for and for those who don't know he's a fellow who wrote a book called Traction uh, about a the entrepreneurial operating system which everybody in this room is utilizing or has implemented in their businesses uh, and he talks about the visionary and the integrator and and for me that was always the vision guy and the guy who makes the trains run on time all good partnerships and good larger businesses have those roles and that relationship. But what about the solo entrepreneur? You know, they are either one of those people, they have to be both of those people. That's right. And so who do they talk to? And and that's a that that's a thing. If you are a solo entrepreneur, find somebody that you can confidentially bounce these ideas off of. Create a living reflection wall that you can do that, and, and at least that way you can move towards getting a lot of the same benefit that a good partnership has with a visionary and an integrator. Absolutely. And, and that you're describing is exactly one of the reasons we want to do a podcast. So you're 50, you are out of the dealership, 
where do you go from there? How do you take all this you've learned and turn into the success story that you have now? Again, I'm an Olympic stumbler. I mean, it's I, I, I have been so blessed in my life to stumble onto things. I spent the first 30 years of my career as an operations person, as an integrator. And I always said, I, you know, I'm like George H.W. Bush said, you know, I'm not good at the vision thing. And, and I've left that to other people. And at 50, I became a visionary because of the nature of the next business I took on and my relative lack of specific operational knowledge. So I became a visionary because that was the job that was available and the job that needed to be done. And so that was, that was an extraordinary thing. And so I, when I say I, st I have stumbled on all these things, I think it's because innately I was always looking for the next thing. You know, once is, a, once is a fluke, twice is a coincidence, three times is a trend, and four times is a habit. So from that standpoint, I think that was always there, and I just didn't acknowledge it and let it grow. So to answer your question, we were selling the dealership. We were selling it in, in the later stages of a recession, which is not the easiest thing to do. And at the middle part of the process, one of our potential purchasers did not want to include our collision center. And Jim said to me, figure out what to do with this thing. So I started taking a look at it and uh, ran the math and ran the numbers. And I was, I have to say, your typical dealership general manager. And my relationship with my body shop managers was this. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. <laughs> right, so man plans and God laughs, so I wound up owning a body shop. And... Uh, who says God does not have a sense of humor either. That's... And just to clarify, Brad, for so a question. So up until this point, you'd had the dealership in North Carolina, which you you owned by yourself. A used car lot. Let's not call it a dealership. <laughs> I call it Value Motors. There you go. Going from the sale of this dealership, and then there's the, the collision repair. When you're going into ownership of collision repair, is it 100% you? Yes. Okay, so you're going back again. So not, not a partner anymore. Now I'm 100% entrepreneur on my own. Right. Okay. The math looked good when I when I broke down the financial statement. I looked at it and I said, "This is a business that, at this scale, in this location, in this market, can do what we needed it to do." And and I I will tell you, this is not something that I have told many people. Uh, I bought that business to sell it. Okay. Now I bought that business at fifty to sell it at sixty-five. The end in mind. You yes. Knew. But and this was the first time that I really okay. I learned those lessons and I said, I'm I'm buying this business to get me from fifty to sixty five. Just to point out to our listener, you are getting thirty years of experience and knowledge at an early stage right now. That, that's huge. It took you thirty years to get to the point it, it uh, to share what you think is probably the most valuable thing you got out of. 40 years of an entrepreneurial life and that's a huge value to all our listeners right now no matter what age what stage of their business that's well, awesome you're, you're very kind uh, smarter people would have taken less than 30 <laughs> years to get there well and as you said like you had most okay. people never get there that's true that's what there. I would you begin with the end in mind and then again you are in this partnership where the end for you was like at some point my business partner is going to pass away we have a buy-sell agreement. I'll buy the rest, and I'll ride this out into retirement. Yes. And then that end, for whatever reason, 
was interfered with. And so now here you are, and again, you've said you've, you've spent 10 years coasting, you know, not growing professional like you should. And, and it's like, hey, by the way, Brad, that end that you set out for, that's not going to happen. You have to create a new vision for yourself. Right. Launching into this pseudo unknown business, but you have an, you have an intent. You know what you're going for. I, I did, and, and it you know, turned out to be a cathartic thing. The, the next few years were the absolute best years of my professional life, most enjoyable, most rewarding, I, I'm fantastic. Is that because uh, you were all in, or you could no, just I've see? Always, I've always been all in. You, always, okay. I, you asked me a question a little while back, how did I get from selling cars to being a partner? Yeah. Um, not because I was the best at each level of the organization. I was probably a better manager and leader than I was a salesperson, but I outworked everybody else. I outlasted everybody else, and mm-hmm. I did the work that nobody else wanted to do. And when you do that for long enough, you're the last one standing. Mm-hmm. Which is a huge pivot now. Here you are, outworked everybody. Your work ethic has got you all levels of success at this point, and now you're going into a business and say, I don't, I got to get out of the day-to-day. I don't. I don't do any work inside of the collision side. How did you make that pivot or transition, or how did you be able to see that's the future for being able to sell this business? So, so I've been so lucky. I've had great teachers and great mentors throughout my career, both in business and, and through related fields. I've great lawyers, great CPAs, people who really knew the right things and had learned great lessons and were kind enough to share them with me. And maybe the best thing I've done in my career was be smart enough to listen to those people and try to put what they taught me into, into action. So the, one of the worst things I think that can happen to a business person is they catch the smartest person in the room syndrome. And as you get more experienced and rise in organizations, you may know more about what you do than anybody else in the organization. But that doesn't mean you should be doing it. And that doesn't mean you're right. And so all of a sudden at 50, I went from being, in my own mind, the smartest person in the room as, as the operating partner of a dealership with, at that point, you know, 28 years of experience, to absolutely not the smartest person in the room. I knew about running a business, but I didn't know anything about collision repair. So I had a general manager. And so I knew I wasn't the smartest person in the room, and I knew I couldn't run the day-to-day operations of the business. So I trusted my people, and and I refocused myself on on basically three things. I was responsible for making sure the business had the capital and the resources to operate. I was responsible for setting the philosophy, culture, and work environment. And I was the face of the business to the community as we became known. Simon Sinek, again, says that your why should be uh, able to be enunciated in less than seven words. And, and I, I did okay with that. I had not heard him at that time. My original philosophy was happy customers, happy employees, great work. It's funny, it took me until 18 months after I sold the business to really understand what our why was, and now it's two words. No games. We didn't play games with anybody. We were honest with everybody. 
we did the work correctly. We didn't play games with the insurance companies. We didn't play games with the customers. We didn't play games with our employees. No games. And that was kind of the embodiment of the philosophy that we had. All right, question for you here. You inherited teams. You inherited the staff of the Collision Center. Did they hold those beliefs as well, or did you have to coach them and, and lead them to follow and, and adapt personally and professionally into happy customers, happy employees, uh, quality work? What, how do you transition a team with very little influence at that time into the culture that you wanted? I was very blessed in that I did inherit a good team. Mm-hmm. But they did work for us in the company at the dealership. And the dealership, while we weren't as intentional about our philosophy and we didn't communicate it as effectively, we still lived it. And we still worked hard to do right by our customers. And we still worked hard to do right by our employees. And, and we, treated, we treated everybody, I said, you know, the first thing I want to do is I want to treat all my employees like adults. And I didn't always understand that. And I finally started really doing that at the Collision Center. I didn't yell, scream, curse. I don't know that I ever really raised my voice in seven years. Now, if you talk to some of my employees who worked for me at the dealership, they would tell you that somebody I was kidnapped by aliens and replaced by a, a kinder, gentler Brad because I did yell and scream and cuss at the dealership, and I shouldn't have. But So we had a pretty good group of people to begin with, and I was very fortunate in that regard. But I became very intentional about communicating our culture internally and externally. So you changed that part of who you were intentionally because of the culture that you wanted to create in the new company. Yes. And, and it, because I saw the weakness in the way I had been doing things. And you were able to do that by communicating to you and training your team was that through weekly meetings? Was that through just uh, your approach and how you handled situations with the team? How intentional were you in, in structuring uh, that culture building process? Not as, not as good as I should have been and not as good as I am now at doing it with my clients' companies, but I was getting better. Mm -hmm. And we did have regular conversations we did make it very clear what the goals were, and then we acted on those. And the first thing is, I didn't want any customer to leave our business unhappy. And, and so I really, I really reinforced that with our people, and I empowered them to do what was necessary to see that that was the case. You did not have to ask my permission to do something extra for a customer if it was the difference between them being happy and not. Regardless of profit. You just took care of it. And anytime there's a gray area, I'm coming down on the customer side. It's just, uh, I just, I believe that. I believe that the long term, we will be more successful because we have exceeded our customer's expectations. You just, you said, you're, if there's a gray area, you're gonna fall on the customer side. Yep. Which means a gray area means the customer's probably not satisfied with a product at some point with the work performed. So you have a team member that you build a culture around and you trust has performed work that the client's not happy about. 
but you're siding in ways to make the customer happy, does that team member feel neglected or feel like uh, you're going against them at that point? How, how do you maintain the culture inside with the customer or the team you're trying to build trust and relationships around it? At all, how that works together uh, is a tough process to manage. The other part of this is was happy employees, right? It was happy employees, happy customers, great work. So I set out immediately, and I was very intentional about this, and, and I reinforced it constantly and to the last day. We are going to be the best organization from a quality standpoint in this market. And that was the goal on every car. It was not, we didn't shortcut anything. We didn't, I mean, there was no, again, no games. The work was, we, I will not apologize for our work because I don't ever want to have to, right? When in, in the seven years I had that business, when we had a failure, it was typically a failure to communicate with our customers. It was not a failure of the quality of the work or the, pro, the repair process. Okay. So I made it an absolute point of pride in our organization. We are going to be the best. And if you're going to work here, you're going to be the best. We're going to train you. We will never stop training you. We will pay you to be the best. We will treat you like an adult. We will make sure you have the opportunity to grow personally, professionally, financially. We are going to exceed our customers' expectations every step through the process. And, and they bought into that. I mean, they, they were proud to work in an organization that was that committed because th- these guys, are, they're, they're professionals. They're artisans. Right? And so when you have good ones and you tell them, we want you to be good, because in so many cases, because of the pressures of the industry, that's a long story nobody wants to hear, there's a lot of pressure to shortcut and to cut corners and to get it done fast and get it out of here. And Which brings me to my next question. You started this business with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. You had a timeline. Financially, was there a scalable model and metrics you had laid out per year of revenue or profit goals you were achieving along the way? We always had goals. So you always had revenue and profit goals. You had financial goals. We did. And then you had culture as well you were building. Absolutely. And that. we shared our revenue goals with our people. We wanted them okay. to know what that meant in terms of because almost any business can be can be broken down into here is the the gross profit that's uh, that you get from the average job so if you know how many jobs you have and you know what the average gross profit is and you have a feel for your expenses then you can bring that down to the bottom line in a fairly straightforward way how do you push profit and revenue and employee pay and opportunity from a financial standpoint and still deliver culture, quality products, all the things you want to, uh, that's a hard balance. But you seem to master that, so I'm, I'm very curious. Well, master is a strong word. I, I think my team was very effective at achieving those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and again, I, no matter how much I want those things, I can say I want us to be the best team in, in the market until I'm blue in the face. I didn't fix a single car in seven years there. And again, you don't want me to. right? If, if our people didn't execute, if they didn't believe it, if they didn't make it happen, it wasn't going to happen. So it had very little to do with me. All I did was set the course. 
the, it, the execution and the fact that, that all of those outcomes were achieved were the result of our outstanding people. They were not a result of me. Everybody works their pay plan. Every employee since the first employee got a pay plan and figured out in short order, how do, we make, how do I make the most money I can make on this pay plan? And probably while doing no more work than I absolutely have to. And that's cool. That's human nature. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. So it's incumbent upon the people drawing up the pay plan to incentivize the behaviors that they want to get. And so often when I talk to, to clients and companies and they say, well, we're not getting the things out of the people that we want to get, the first thing I'll say is, well, can I see their pay plan? And we'll take a look, and they're not incentivizing the behaviors that they're asking their employees to generate. So we structured incentive-based pay plans that, that rewarded productivity and quality. The other thing is, and, and I'm a big believer in this, I always paid my customer-facing people out of one pot. So it was, you got the, the entire organization got paid out of the same pot because I never wanted any of my employees to say, that's not my customer, that's not my responsibility. We rose and, and fell together as a team, as opposed to as individuals. That's great, because you guys are competing for each other, not against each other Yes, as a team. So, all right, one is something that was spoken to Chad and myself by a previous uh, management team member, which, and again, it, it takes me to your story. It's one thing to manage a company. It's a totally different thing to build a company. And oftentimes people that have managed a company successfully have a false assumption that they could build a company successfully. And the two things are different. You may have the knowledge of running it at a certain level, but to build it from nothing to that level are different. So what I want to know is what you were building into that 10-year plan or excuse me, 15-year plan, and then what shifted? Because the only Brad Tucker I've ever known is the guy who, this is where I, I come into the story. You and I met about mm -hmm. 10 years ago. And I know the Brad Tucker that built this company and sold it. But your plan was 15 years to sell it. You sold it in nine years. I want to know what... Seven. I'm sorry? Seven. Seven years. I'm yeah. sorry. Seven years. So you sold it 50% or you know twice as fast as you thought. Can you walk us through real quick? The knowledgeable 50-year-old Brad Tucker is building this business to sell it and what can you tell our listener about this is what you want to do to successfully build a company that you can that you can exit so one of the smartest people i know is a fellow named chris hanks and i don't know if you all know him or not but he's been involved with the entrepreneurship program here at uga uh, at kennesaw state and now he has an institute for ceos and every time i've ever listened to chris i've learned something that's really actionable and one of the things that he said to me was that as you grow in, in your personal wealth as, as a, a professional, initially you're paid for what you can do. Then at the next level, you're paid for what you know. And then at the top level, you're paid for what you can grow. And that's basically what you were just saying. You know, you, first you get paid for the sweat of your brow and the strength of your back. And then as a manager, you get paid for what you know. Where I got paid with the last business for, was for what we could grow. And, and we were very blessed. We grew um, Georgia Square 61% in six years from a top-line revenue standpoint. And, and so our philosophy, you talked about 
fast growth or slow. My philosophy has always been grow, 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 grow. I want to grow the business until I can't grow it anymore. Then I want to figure out why I can't grow it anymore, fix that, and keep growing the business. Now, occasionally you'll grow it beyond where you can handle it, and then you might have to take a breather and improve your processes so that they can continue to be robust because it doesn't matter how big you've gotten, the last customer wants to have the same quality experience that the first customer had because that's why they came to you. Buy it with the idea or start it with the idea, run it with the idea that you're not gonna be there forever. So the first thing you need to do to have any kind of an exit strategy is build a business that does not require your day-to-day -day involvement. Because if you're, the only thing you're selling is you, Who's going to be gone when you've sold it? You. So what have you got to sell? Nothing. So first thing is the business must run without your day-to-day -day involvement. I would even go so far as to say you should not name the business after yourself. The second thing is start it from the, from the first day you're in it with a good tight set of books and keep them that way. Because anybody who's interested in buying your business needs to be able to see that your results are actual verifiable and documentable. So if you, if you aren't keeping good books, you're going to have to fix that before you can even have a conversation. And typically any buyer wants to see at least three years worth of backward facing financials. So you need to have them fixed for three years. Number three, run it like somebody could come in tomorrow and buy it from you because that's exactly what happened. I had no intentions of exiting the business at 57, but I had a set of financial goals that I wanted to achieve, and, and a major national player came along seven years after I started and offered me the numbers. So yeah, I was not sitting in my office going, you know, boy, I want to be out of this thing in six months, or boy, I wish somebody would come in the door today and make me an offer. You're just running the best business you know how. Just trying to just trying to grow a business. That was built to sell from day one, though. It, it was. You were already keeping track of everything you needed to keep track of and the way you needed to keep track of it. So so when they did knock on your door, it wasn't like, oh, I'll come back in three years when I've had a chance to actually right. redo my numbers and you know build myself out of the company and things like that. They come in. They got their rules. What did they value most about your business? Was it the bottom line? Was it the culture? Was it the happy customers? Was it the quality product? What placed the most value in your product and business at the time to the buyer? Why did they come knock on your door? Uh, I can only speak to what was in my mind and, and, and infer or assume what was in theirs. The collision space is undergoing some pretty significant consolidation like so many businesses. We were the largest player in the market. And so if you asked me to assume, I would say this would be my assumption. They desired to enter the Athens market. We were a, the only slice of the Atlanta metro where they were not present. They had a choice coming into town. They could buy me or they could compete with me. I knew that at some point the consolidators would come to Athens. I knew when that happened, I could either sell to them or compete with them. If we chose the competition method, we would both survive, but it could get 
nasty and it could cost all of us some money for a while. Um, and so I made the decision that if the circumstances were right, that it made sense to, to go ahead and sell to them. And they, I am aware that I was not the only person in the market with whom they communicated. But as their number two at the time said, you're the best fit for us in this market. We want to come into this market. This is the way we'd like to do it. Which circles back to the point you made earlier for the entrepreneur. Start with the end in mind, but be flexible with the journey along the way. Absolutely. You had the end in mind. It was a 15-year plan, but you weren't so committed with blinders on to that plan that you were able to see the value and the opportunity in front of you at year seven. I, I think that's if if you if, if the end is if the end is what you want, and somebody puts it in front of you, yeah, I, take it. Yep, there's there's time to do something else. Any, I'm, I'm doing something else now. Any regrets? Anything you would do different in that collision shop, start sell seven year process? I, I, this is not the answer to your question, but I'm going to say this because I, this is one of the most fundamental lessons I've learned about entrepreneurship and ownership. Until you own 51% of something, you are an employee with a pay plan. You may, you may be an owner, air quotes, but the difference between the real owner, who is the person who owns over 50%, firing you and firing the entry, most entry-level employee in your organization is that the owner has to write you a check to fire you for your stock. That's the only difference. Other than that, you, you're on a 24-hour contract. I knew that, and I understood it for years. What I didn't understand until I came to work as, as the owner of Georgia Square Collision is that the minute you own 51% of something, you are the only employee who can't quit. Every employee in your organization can leave you, and they will work next week, next month, they may have to move, they may be displaced, it may be distressing, but they will continue. Your customers, they can go somewhere else. When I bought Georgia Square Collision, there were 22 body shops in Athens, Georgia. They can go somewhere else. They may not get quite as good work, it may not be done quite as fast, but it'll get done. All of them can go somewhere else. If they did that, I'd be broke a week later. The minute you understand that, as a business owner, then you really understand what servant leadership is about because I needed my employees more than they needed me. And I needed my customers more than they needed me. And that was, that was an epiphany for me. So what would, would I have done things differently? All in all, I feel really blessed with the experience and there's probably not a lot that I would have done differently. But I got there because I made so many mistakes the times before and learned from them. Dear Brad, the, the cool thing with listening to this entire interview is that lots of people, anybody who's an entrepreneur, they're going to make mistakes on their adventure. It's just part of it, right? Like yep. if, we, if everything was perfect, if you were playing basketball and every time you shot it went in, at some point you, it would lose its fun. There's no, there's no adventure when you're guaranteed to make it every time. But lots of entrepreneurs choose to blame their mistakes on others. They, they don't take responsibility for their mistakes. Therefore, they don't learn from them. And it sounds like for you that you just consistently would take responsibility and learn and move on so you could scale up the mountain. The one theme throughout this episode that you've talked about, which I think goes in huge to the, to the logo, to the reason we do this, 
is that you wouldn't go mountain climbing with wisdom anyway by yourself. You would choose to go with someone. You would choose to partner up with someone. And that doesn't mean business partner per se, but it's just that mentorship and that guidance. And that's the one theme throughout the whole talk you've had. You mentioned your wife. So like the association that goes with having a good life partner. You mentioned that, you know, you had two roads to go down and the guy who called first was the one you went down and he, and he was proven to be a great friend and a great mentor through your whole life. And even the one, so the outside mentorship that you currently offer, like, right, you, people can, can pay Brad Tucker to be their mentor right now. And you've mentioned like you paid good money to good professionals to be mentors Absolutely. and guides in your life. And that's for me, the big takeaway from this is the focal point of, making sure you got good solid people around you to help guide you through these decisions. If you're being the, you know, the one guy who knows everything and like, like all decisions, again, the, the one way street, I got yep. one way to do it. And this is what we do. And this is the way Josh Belton does. That's a pathway to destruction. And I have dozens of additional questions I'd love to get into. And I've heard you speak on culture and it's probably the best presentation uh, I've ever heard around culture and hiring and I think right now and, and what a lot of business owners are going through, that's valuable. Um, I heard you say, I, I love this. Uh, you mentioned from a consulting side, what you do now is you help business owners own the business and not let the business own them. Like that's, that speaks to 20 years of my life and, and knowing you have the knowledge and wisdom and consulting experience uh, to help people get out of that is, is life changing. It's, it's an extraordinary pleasure to help business owners and leaders have aha moments. The other thing is that, that entrepreneurship, as we all know, can be a very lonely gig. There, you know, as a business owner, it's really hard. You can't let everybody know everything that's on your mind because it creates too much uncertainty for your team. It, it's important to have somebody that you can confidentially bounce ideas off of for that solo entrepreneur or talk about a strategy that, that you're not sure you want to employ and need to get some perspective on. And, and to be able to help business owners and, and leaders find clarity and, and reach those decisions is, is hugely rewarding for me. And I tell most of my clients, really, you already know everything you need to know about where you want to go. Oftentimes, it is just getting the opportunity to talk it out and and rub on it and and discuss it and and you'll and it will surface those things that you know that you just haven't been able to crystallize so maybe if i have a, a skill that i can help people with it's that i know how to ask certain questions that can help draw that information out for business owners and leaders well you guys have heard it so much here Brad Tucker, Look Ahead Business Consulting. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the Entrepreneur Adventure Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Entrepreneur Adventure. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to like and subscribe to the Entrepreneur Adventure wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check us out on the web at www.theentrepreneuradventure.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram as well. And remember, the Entrepreneur Adventure does not have to be traveled alone, but is a journey to be shared. We'll catch you next time on Entrepreneur Adventure, where we give you the tools to climb higher and faster than ever before.